0: Well, good morning, Redeemer. My name is Brian, and this morning we're going to be looking at John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and we're going to consider an extravagant wedding. And this is part of our series, Jesus, Beautiful and Believable, while Pastor L is away on sabbatical. As you find your place in your Bibles in John chapter 2 or on your devices, I'd encourage you to keep them open this morning. We'll be going back to it again and again. Sometimes things are more than they appear. In college, uh, my friends and I used to watch together over and over again as part of our culture, the Princess Bride. And this movie, as it becomes a part of the culture, then you begin to quote things to one another as you come up. You know, hello, my name is Antigo Montoya. You kill my father. Prepare to die. Uh, Or, and as for rodents of unusual size, I don't believe they exist. Right? It just becomes a part of your culture that way. Well, The Princess Bride came out in 1987, and it is a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale that is a love story. And this love story is between Wesley and Buttercup. And Wesley is just a poor farm boy who works on Buttercup's farm. And Buttercup, she loves nothing more than just to boss Wesley around. This request and that request. And to every request, Wesley responds with, as you wish. And they realize that every time Wesley says, as you wish, what he's really saying is, I love you. Because you see, sometimes things are more than they appear. And that's certainly what's happening this morning in the miracle at Cana. It is more than it appears. We're going to look at our passage this morning under three headings. First of all, we're going to consider the detailed extravagance. Secondly, we'll consider the definitive announcement. And thirdly, we'll consider our glorious hope. The detailed extravagance, the definitive announcement, and our glorious hope. And here's what I'm going to tell you this morning the miracle at Cana was more than just saving a party from embarrassment. It is a taste of our glorious hope. Let me say that again. The miracle at Cana is more than just saving a party from embarrassment. It is a taste of our glorious hope. Focus your attention with me on John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come into your presence this morning to hear about water turned into wine and a wedding at a nondescript place far away from here, I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel through the work of your Holy Spirit and the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins for they are many. May we see Jesus and him only. Amen. So first of all, this morning let's consider the detailed extravagance. The detailed extravagance. Like every great story, this story weaves in key details into the fabric of the narrative. And the details matter. Let's look at some of these details. In verse one, it's on the third day and at Cana. And this is telling us that this event actually happened in space and time. This is historical. There's a place and there's a time given to it. And this is an introduction as part of the first week of Jesus's ministry. If you go back to the end of John chapter one, John and John 1 29 identified Jesus as behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then Andrew and the unnamed disciple, who is probably John, uh, follow Jesus. And then there's the call of Peter, who is Andrew's brother. And then Jesus, at the very end of John chapter 1, calls Nathaniel. And then on the third day, they arrive at Cana. And the third day is designed to give you a sense of the travel that's involved here. They left, they traveled the second day, and they arrived on the third day. And this wedding is at Cana. Cana is a small, insignificant town. It's only mentioned four times in the Bible. It's mentioned twice here, verse 1 and verse 11. It's mentioned in John 4.46 with the healing of the official's son. And then in John 21.2, we find out that Nathanael, who Jesus just called, is also from Cana. But it's nowhere else in the entire Bible, right? This is not a well-known place. It's this kind of hick town out of the way where nobody knows where nobody goes frequently. Well, you get the cast of characters in verses 1 and 2. Jesus, his mother and the disciples are invited to this wedding. And in verse 3, you run into the problem in the narrative. And what's the problem? When the wine ran out. When the wine ran out. Now in Jewish culture, in Jesus' day, weddings typically lasted a week, and celebration was a robust part of Jewish culture. And in that celebration, wine was the joy. Wine represented the joy. And so it was an embarrassment, a social faux pas to run out of wine. But more than that, this is something that could take legal action. One commentator says, "'There was something of a slur on the hosts, "'for they had not fully discharged the duties "'of hospitality. "'This rendered the bridegroom's family liable "'to a lawsuit. "'They were legally required "'to provide a feast of a certain standard.'" Can you imagine being sued "'cause your party wasn't cool enough Right, like you, you run out of wine, you might get sued. Here, Jesus's mother, who by the way is not named in the Gospel of John, she's always referred to as Jesus's mother, um, re- uh, reports this to Jesus, and then in verse four, Jesus responds, and he responds, "Woman." And we need to stop right there because for you and me, that may feel like a sign of disrespect. If you in public called your wife woman, you might end up on the couch for a week, right? Uh, but in Jesus's day, woman in Jesus's culture was the equivalent in the Southern culture of ma'am, right? It's a sign of respect. And this is how Jesus always addresses women in Uh, In the Gospels, he addresses them as, ma'am, a sign of respect. And then keep reading in verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, this seems like a no from Jesus. Well, you know, I'm not going to do it. But actually, there's a pattern here, and it's a well-known pattern that's used in the Gospels. It's a pattern of request, rebuke, and then assistance. Request, rebuke, and assistance. So Jesus, it sounds like he's saying no, but he's not actually saying no. He's going to insert something to correct a misunderstanding here. And that's the way Mary understands it, because look at verse 5. She tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. And by the way, Mary here isn't necessarily thinking that Jesus is going to perform a miracle, but she's referencing the resourcefulness of this unique son that she's raised for 30 years. Verse 6, there are six stone jars. And did you see how big these jars were? They were each holding 20 to 30 gallons. That means the capacity of these stone jars was between 120 and 180 gallons. And these stone jars, verse 6, were for the Jewish rites of purification. They were made out of stone, which was a material that in Jewish culture couldn't communicate, couldn't transfer uncleanliness. And these kinds of jars and this water were typically used in cleanliness rites. So in Leviticus 11 uh, through 14, there are these cleanliness codes that that God gives to his people in order to keep his people distinct from the other nations to remind them you're different you're separate and there are these purification rites, these cleanliness codes to remind you that you are designed to be set apart you are designed to be holy verse 7 they fill the jars and did you notice how full they filled them It's like a Folgers commercial, right? They filled them all the way to the brim, to maximum capacity. And then in verse 8, they take it to the master of the feast. And the master of the feast, verse 10, after tasting this new wine, not knowing where it comes from, says to the bridegroom, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you. You have kept the good wine until now. And oh, brothers and sisters, this is a picture. This is a picture of the abundance of God, of the extravagance of God, of the surprising goodness of God. There's a blessing in unexpected places when almost no one is watching. And this is telling us something about the character of god and his kingdom it's saying that our god delights to give glimpses of extravagance in unexpected places one of my favorite places in the world is antelope canyon and antelope canyon is about two hours north of the grand canyon on the border of arizona and utah And it's a slot canyon, and the beauty is almost indescribable. You know, pictures never really capture the full beauty of a place. Um, And so I wanna show you some pictures of Antelope Canyon just to give you a taste. Here, can I get that first slide, Andre? So here is a picture of Antelope Canyon. It's a slot canyon. You can see kind of the red lines of stratification and there's this narrow walkway. The the whole length of the canyon, it's about two yards to walk through. Some places a little wider, some places a little bit steeper and, and light breaks through. Here's the next slide. You can see kind of walking through in the gradation and the light, the colors, it just comes alive. It dances. And then the third slide, when you look up and you just see a sliver of the sky through all of the red and all of the beauty, right? This is Antelope Canyon. But here's the thing. It's hidden. It's hidden. You could walk right by it and never know it was there. Can I get that next slide? This is what it looks like on the outside right it's just a little crevice in the ground you have no idea that there's all that beauty underneath that crevice when you begin your descent you could walk right by it you could miss it entirely thanks andre and john doesn't want you to miss the extravagance Of this wedding even though many people did that day many people never knew about this extravagance they missed it entirely but John is inviting you in because John wants you to see that we have a God who delights to give us glimpses of extravagance in unexpected places it's almost frivolous right the best wine of the feast at an unexpected time after everyone has already drunk freely, right? Um, and, and it's in an insignificant town to only a handful of witnesses solving a problem that the bridegroom probably wasn't even aware of until it was called to his attention. And this, this is the first of Jesus's signs. And the word first here, that's verse 11, the first of his signs. And the word first here doesn't just have the sense of order, but it has a sense of the beginning, the, the fountainhead. This is the pattern, the foundation from which every other sign will flow. And by the way, the book of John is about signs. There are seven signs so designated in the book. In John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine. In John chapter 4, Jesus heals the nobleman's son. In John chapter 5, he heals the man at the pool. In John 6, he feeds the 5,000. He also walks on water. John 9, he heals the man born blind. In John 11, he resurrects Lazarus from the dead. And each of these is designated as a sign. And at the end of the book of John, John tells you about these signs. He says, now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, these seven are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And that's exactly what happened in John chapter 2. Look there at verse 11, the very end. And his disciples believed in him now his disciples don't play an active role in this story their only job is to be a witness and why would his disciples believe in him have you ever thought about that why would Jesus's disciples believe in him after he turns water into wine right I mean, it's not like he's uh, cured leprosy or given sight to the blind or raised the dead. He just saved a party. And let's be honest, I mean, should he really have saved a party, right? I mean, so growing up um, in my family culture, my family of origin, we weren't teetotalers. Mom and dad would have an occasional glass of wine or that sort of thing Uh, i didn't have my first beer until seminary um that says something about seminary maybe i don't know um but uh in my family of origin it was okay to drink but drunkenness was absolutely abhorrent y'all come from families like these um drunkenness was abhorrent so in college if you were drinking I was silently judging you. I was silently judging you. And I, I felt better about myself because I could look down on those who drink. I could look down on those sinners, those drunkards. Thank goodness I'm not like them, you know? It was so much the, the older brother. It was so much the Pharisee who says, thank God I'm not like those tax collectors, right? I was justifying myself by looking down on people who did something that well, I didn't do, right? So growing up, this sign always sort of puzzled me. Why is it that turning water into wine so that those who have drunk freely can drink even more, why is this the beginning of Jesus' signs? And what does it say about the kingdom of God? And most importantly, why would his disciples believe in him? That brings us, secondly, then, to the definitive announcement. The definitive announcement. Look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. So now we have to ask, how does this sign manifest his glory? And by the way, glory is what this book is all about. It's what the book of John is all about. Can I get that next slide, Andre? In John 1.14, it says, And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory, right? This is what the book is about. He goes on to unpack, John goes on to unpack this a little bit more in verses 16 and 17. For from his fullness, from Jesus' fullness, that is, from Jesus' abundance, from Jesus' extravagance, right? We have all received grace upon grace and then he goes on to unpack what those graces are for the law, that's the first grace, was given through Moses, and grace and truth, that's the second grace, came through Jesus Christ. And there's a contrast here. John is contrasting the law of Moses, which is a grace, to the fullness of grace and truth in Jesus Christ. He's contrasting the Old Testament with the New Testament. He's contrasting the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. Thanks, Andre and in John chapter 2 that the water in stone jars that was set aside for these purification rites these this cleanliness code Now, there's some debate on what this water would have been used for. Some have said that, well, when you have a party like this, you need to have water in order to ritually wash your hands. Everybody would have needed to wash your hands. And others have argued, no, this is actually for the washing of the bride before the wedding night. But either way, the water of the law is being contrasted with wine. The water of the law is being contrasted with the joy of the feast. The joy of the feast. Now, if I had understood my Old Testament in college, I would have had a very different conclusion about wine. Yes, drunkenness is wrong. (laughs) Don't leave Redeemer here this morning saying, Oh, I've got permission to get wasted. Now, right? That's not what I'm saying. But in the Old Testament, wine was a picture of the new heavens and the new earth, where God lays out a banquet of abundant food and wine. Did you hear it in our Old Testament readings this morning? On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of what? of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all of our faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. There's going to be rejoicing and dancing. God says he will turn your mourning into joy. He will bring you comfort And he will give you gladness for sorrow. Our souls will feast on abundance. And we will be satisfied with the goodness of God. That's a picture of the extravagant feast at the end of time. And this is why water turning into wine was the beginning of Jesus' signs. And this is why the disciples believed because as the disciples saw the water of purification transformed into the wine of the feast, as they were reading it with their Old Testament glasses, they caught a glimpse, a hint, a whisper of that extravagant feast at the end of time. You see, the kingdom of God was breaking in. And this is a definitive announcement of the kingdom. This is a taste, a glimpse, of the new heavens and the new earth. And what does it say about the kingdom of God? Do you remember those Hershey Kiss commercials that came out a while ago? It said big things come in small packages, right? That's what's going on here. The inbreaking of the kingdom of God starts at Cana, the smallest of places to only a few witnesses, solving a problem the bridegroom probably wasn't even aware of. And yet, it's a picture of the abundance of the kingdom. Isn't it just like our God to break in and give us a glimpse of his extravagant goodness in the cracks and crevices of our lives, in the unnoticed places Of our lives God shows up sometimes when we least expect him and brings joy even when it seems like our world is crumbling perhaps especially when it seems like our world is crumbling it's a promise of the extravagant feast at the end of time and it begins with just this whisper you can hear Jesus saying the kingdom of God is here the kingdom of God is coming, and it's a party, and it's a party. And this is precisely how this sign manifests Jesus' glory. Did you catch that in verse 11? This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. You see, Jesus' glory is manifested in the abundance of the celebration. In the joy of the party, in the celebration of the feast. Have you ever thought of Jesus' glory that way? The sheer joy of a party. Jesus transforms the water of the law into the wine of celebration. And John wants you to see the abundance of this celebration. You see those six jars? held 120 to 180 gallons of wine, and they were filled to the brim, verse 7. Y'all, that's 1,500 pounds of wine. That's three quarters of a ton of wine. That's a lot of wine, right? It's the abundance of the celebration because the kingdom of God, however quietly, is breaking in and it's the unstoppable unshakable kingdom of God and this this is just the beginning one commentator says nothing is changed but everything is changed another commentator says this is an announcement the old things have passed away behold the new things have come you see Jesus is beginning his work of transformation. He changes the water of the old covenant into the wine of the new covenant, the water of Christlessness into the wine of eternal life in Christ, the water of the of the law into the wine of the gospel. And by the way, this theme of transformation is central to John 2 through 4. One commentator says that these three chapters Uh, together present the replacement of the old purifications by by the wine of the kingdom of God the replacement of the old temple also John 2 by the new temple in the risen Lord an exposition of the new birth for a new creation a contrast between the water of Jacob's well with the living water from Christ and the worship at Jerusalem with the worship of in spirit, and in truth. You see, Jesus' ministry is defined by transformation. Because you see, Jesus is a king who is making all things new. The kingdom is breaking in. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's a definitive announcement. That takes us then thirdly to our glorious hope. Our glorious hope. So the kingdom of God, we've been saying, is like a party. It's the joy of the party, the joy of the celebration, the joy of the feast. But did you notice? This isn't just any party. It's a wedding. It's a wedding. Why a wedding? Why is the first sign, the foundation of all the other signs, the pattern of all the other signs, why is it a wedding? Did you know that the Bible begins with a wedding? Genesis chapter 2. And the Bible ends with a wedding in Revelation chapter 19. And why does it begin with a wedding and end with a wedding? Because in the Bible, marriage is the controlling metaphor of God's relationship to his people. The Bible is saying, Do you want to know what a relationship with God is like? it's like marriage. It's like the best of marriages. It's like what marriage is designed to be. The joy, the connection, the union, the intimacy of marriage is telling us about the relationship that God wants with us. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture comes from Isaiah 62 verse 5, and it says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride... So God rejoices over you. And this is the kind of language that's used throughout the prophets about God and his relationship with his people. And then Paul, in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 5, says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that marriage refers to, it points to Christ and the church. It's a sign. Now, marriage is ubiquitous. It's been in every culture throughout time in the history of the world. It's an ongoing and perpetual institution. But it's not just that God found this cultural artifact lying around and went, you know, maybe I could explain my relationship with my people kind of like this. You know, actually, it's much deeper. You see, God invented marriage. And he invented marriage in part to explain his relationship to you right? With this ubiquitous institution that's been in every culture throughout time, God is whispering, I want a covenantal relationship with you. I want a faithful, safe, secure, vulnerable, intimate, life-giving relationship with you. You see, the Bible portrays Jesus as the ultimate bridegroom. Jesus is saying, I want a relationship with you that's not just a king to a subject or a shepherd to a sheep, not just a sovereign creator to a lowly creature or a transcendent God to a finite human. Jesus is saying, I want a relationship with you that is like a husband to a wife. And Tim Keller says, there's no other religion that portrays God like that. And oh, brothers and sisters, here's the good news. If we are in Christ, if we're in Christ, then that marriage is our destiny. Did you catch it as Jermaine read our call to worship this morning from Revelation 19? Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, Revelation 19 ends, the Bible ends with a wedding. Jesus is marrying his people. It's the truest happily ever after there ever was. And this is why Jesus' first sign is at a wedding, You see, the kingdom that begins in John chapter 2 culminates in Revelation chapter 19. The kingdom that breaks in in John chapter 2 comes to fruition in Revelation 19. The kingdom that is promised in John chapter 2 is realized in Revelation 19. And brothers and sisters, if you know, right, if we can just remember that that's how our story ends, doesn't that change everything? Doesn't that change 8 a.m. on a Monday morning as kids are going back to school or Friday afternoon at 5 p.m. as you get off from work? Doesn't it change your struggles with your kids or the injustice in society, the difficulty of your job? Doesn't it give you hope? Tim Keller uses the illustration time and time again of two, two guys working in a factory, Right, and they're making widgets eight, eight in the morning to five p.m. at night, 365 days a year. It's dark, it's gloomy, and they're just there. They're just making widgets, one widget after the other. And you know, the the, the boss tells person A, right? Now, at the end of this year, eight to five, dark, making widgets, 365 days a year. At the end of, at the end of the year, you're going to get twenty thousand dollars. And he tells person B. Person B, at the end of the year, you're going to make $20 million. Right? Now, person A is kind of in the doldrums and just grieving. Person B, right, is over here making widgets, just singing away as happy as possible. They're doing the exact same job and the exact same circumstances, but what? Their vision of the future has been changed. And when your vision of the future is changed, When you realize that the marriage supper of the Lamb is your final destiny, that you're going to live forever in the truest fairy tale that's ever told, when that becomes real to your heart, you're going to be dancing while you're making the widgets, right? It changes our perspective. Do you know how your story ends? Can we remember just today how your story ends. But if you want to understand the full depth of John chapter 2, then you really need to understand what's being said in verse 4. right? After his mother said they have no wine, and before Jesus gifts the wine, he says to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? And then he says this, My hour is not yet come. Now that word hour occurs 12 times in John in this particular technical manner. Sometimes it's used as a a way of counting time, in the sixth hour, in the ninth hour, but every time Jesus refers to it as my hour, he's referring to the cross. And so why does Jesus reference the cross here in the midst of this wedding Tim Keller suggests that Jesus is doing what single people often do at weddings, right? You're single, you've been single. Do you remember being single? And at weddings, you get that dreamy, far-off look in your eye. Why? Because you're dreaming about your wedding day. You're dreaming about your future spouse. And so on this wedding at Cana in Galilee, Jesus looks down the corridor of time and sees the church triumphant. He sees all his people across time. He looks into the future and he sees you and he sees me. And he knows what it's going to cost him. He knows that he's going to have to go to the cross. And so everyone's happy, but Jesus is sad. And Ed Clowney says this, he says, Jesus sits in the midst of all that joy, sipping coming sorrow, so that you can sit in the midst of all the world's sorrow and sip the coming joy. You see, in The Princess Bride, Wesley declared his love for Buttercup every time he said, as you wish. And it's a great love story but it's only a fairy tale. You see in the gospel of John, every time John uses the word hour, Jesus is declaring his love for you. And it's a great love story, and it's so much more than a fairy tale. It's the truest story that's ever been told it's the story to which every fairy tale alludes it's a story that is the pattern and foundation of all great stories jesus sits in the midst of all that joy sipping coming sorrow so that you can sit in the midst of all the world's sorrow and sip the coming joy you see the miracle at cana wasn't just saving a party from an embarrassment. It is a taste of our glorious hope. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we long for the party, for the joy of the feast where every tear will be wiped away, where all the injustices of our worlds will finally be righted. And oh, Father, as we come to prepare uh, to come to the Lord's table, I ask that you would encourage our hearts with this down payment of our future hope. And would it transform